Hey, it's Ian Altman. Before we dive into this week's episode, do me a favor and stop by and visit GiversEdge.com. There are only a few gifts I've received over the years that really stood out, and they were all sourced by the ruling group who you can find at GiversEdge.com. Hey, it's Ian Altman. I always talk about how important content marketing is to growing your business. And this week, we're joined by Ahava Liebtag. Ahava is the president and owner of AHA Media Group and the author of The Digital Crown, Winning at Content on the Web. She's an expert when it comes to content marketing and content strategy. We'll talk about the biggest mistakes that organizations make with content strategy, how to properly set up content strategy to drive business for your organization, and some tips and tricks to get you started. You're going to learn a ton from Ahava Liebtag. Ahava Liebtag, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, and it's great to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you because there's a lot of people in, in our audience who they, they start with a process and they think they have a strategy for their content and content marketing, and it ends up not producing results, and they get frustrated. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see that businesses make when it comes to their content strategy or lack thereof? Sure, absolutely. So the first mistake that I see people make over and over and over again is that they do not define their audience as well. And that means that they really have to get down into the specifics of what people are looking for, why they're coming to them, why they want to learn about their products and services, how they can answer them in the fastest way possible and be efficient with their time. That's the first mistake. The second mistake I think may surprise you. And that's that internally at companies, nobody is appointed to be in charge of content. There isn't a chief content officer or there isn't a VP of marketing who has that underneath his or her role that is reports up to somebody who then reviews them annually on how content is performing. It's one of these things that just completely gets overlooked by everybody in the company until one day they really need something or they can't find something or they don't know what they're doing. And then all of a sudden there's nobody responsible. It just is too amorphous. It belongs to too many groups. And so those are the mistakes that we see over and over again. So so that notion of they're not defining their audience as well and they don't have a single person who's accountable and responsible for their content strategy. That's correct. Okay. Now, so so when when you're in a situation where there isn't someone in that role, when there isn't a chief content officer, what happens? What 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 does that lead to when organizations don't have somebody in that role? Right. So it depends on the size of the organization, but mostly what we see is inconsistent content and then duplicate content. So um, I'll give you an example. I once worked on a project for a big IT reseller and they had produced these white papers and every department who was responsible for selling those types of equipment had produced similar white papers so that when the consumer came to the website to figure out if they wanted to purchase the server or this cloud system, they were, there was just too many choices and the content seemed to overlap and it wasn't clear what the company was really trying to say. And each department was giving their own message. And so that, that is the main problem that we see is that you just end up completely confusing your audience because no one person or group of people, this can also be run by committee, is responsible for delivering a consistent, coherent content product. So so I guess from an internal perspective, what happens is you end up having multiple people doing the same job over and over again. And then from an external customer perspective, 
I guess what happens is your customer starts getting slightly different messages from the same company. And if they don't know if, if, if everything isn't consistent, they assume that someone's lying. So they just move on to the next vendor. Exactly. Right. It create right. Inconsistent content creates mistrust. That's exactly correct. You know what it's like? I always compare it to the bipolar ninth grade friend you made like when you were a freshman. So that person like you <laughs> ate lunch with them on Monday and Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, they didn't want to be friends with you anymore because they found a cooler kid. And then next week they came back to you because they realized that cool crowd wasn't going to accept you. That's, awesome. that's that's what inconsistent content does to you. It just makes you feel like you're getting whiplash and people don't want to deal with companies where they don't feel like they can trust them. Yeah, which in in nowadays it's even more and more prevalent. So you, you talked about the first thing is organizations don't define their audience as well. So how how should an organization go about defining their audience to attract the right people to their content? That's a really great question and it's a really great topic and it's very very deep, but here's what I would say right off the bat. The first thing is, is that the company needs to look at what their business objectives are, and they have to be very clear to the people who are responsible for content about what they're trying to do so that they can clearly define their audiences. When we come into organizations and we consult with them and we look at what's happening with their content, very often it's that the executives have not communicated clearly to the content teams what exactly it is that they're trying to do, or worse, content has become politicized and then nobody's getting clear information because there's a turf war. So that's the first thing that needs to happen is that business objectives need to be highlighted. The second way that you can get to know your customers is by all the stuff that we all know, you know, focus groups and surveys and market research and data and, you know, usability testing and all of that. But the third way to get to know your audience, and I think is really one of the most effective ways, is to look at user-generated content around your topic. So looking at message boards, looking at social media, looking at what people are talking about, going to conferences and hearing what people's concerns are. I think immersing yourself in your audience is the best way to get to know them and to understand their pain points. So is it more valuable? Should people be focusing more on describing their solutions or describing the problems that their customers face? The second. Absolutely. It's nobody cares about you. Nobody cares about your brand. Nobody cares about your product until it matters to them, until they need it. And then they start paying attention like you wouldn't believe. So you have to understand what their problems are and what they're trying to solve before you can even sit down and think about what your content should look like. Another major problem that we see is that because executives don't understand this, they get content and then they edit it or ask it to be rewritten because it doesn't talk about the brand enough. But people don't care about the brand. That's not the perspective they're interested in hearing. What they're interested in hearing is what are you going to do for me? Yep. So give me an example of, because I know you've worked with a lot of different businesses and you can genericize it so no one gets outed here, but give me an example of of a business and how their content strategy changed from what it was to what it became so that our audience can kind of better understand what that journey looks like. Absolutely. So when we come in, we try to help companies define or answer five questions. And those questions are, who is your audience? What is your brand? How do you want to talk to them? How do you want to sound? And then where and when do you want to say this? And there are tools that we produce out of answering those questions personas, identity pillars, messaging architecture, voice and tone, and then an editorial calendar. And so one of the clients that we worked with, um, 
had a 28% increase in their social media traffic after we answered those questions. And they also had far less confusion among their content teams about how to write content. So the VP was telling me that when she edited content now, or when she got final approval on content, she was amazed at how much time she was saving on editing because it was so much easier now that everybody had the same marching orders. So it's really, I mean, it's, I hate to use the pun, but it's really about getting people on the same page and everybody understanding what it is that we're trying to accomplish and how we're going to accomplish it. And once you pretty much give people their marching orders, if they're talented and they're good at their jobs, they can follow a system and they can follow a a plan for how to get to where we're trying to go. Yep. And so you, you talk about this idea of defining the audience. So how much time do you spend on kind of the demographics, company size, industry, and that sort of stuff versus how much time do you spend on the more specific conditions or circumstances those organizations might find themselves in? Meaning are you just saying, oh, we're going to focus on government contractors above a certain amount of revenue or is it – Look, we're going to – it's fine. There are government contractors about this amount of revenue, but we're trying to find people who are experiencing these sorts of challenges. That, so I try to do a hybrid approach. We try okay. to comb through every bit of data that they have. So we ask them to give us everything that they have about what they know about their audiences. And then what I like to do is I like to get on the phone with the sales staff or the frontline people, because I don't think that there's any better way for you to answer your users' questions than hear what the frontline people are answering. So for example, at a hospital, I might want to talk to the call center people or the nurse practitioners or the administrators or the people who do the intake at the hospital, because they'll tell you what people's primary questions are. If I'm working with a financial services firm, I'm going to want to talk to the call center and the people who answer their questions. I'm going to want to look at what their website FAQs look like, what people are pulling up, what people are talking to at the live message people. So it's both. It's sort of grabbing the high level and then grabbing the minutia and then trying to find a way to marry them that makes sense. And always coming to it with a sense of curiosity. Oh, that's really interesting. Tell me more about that. I want to know more about how this works. And to the point where you get to a point where you feel like you're asking stupid questions, but you're uncovering so many layers that are so valuable for creating a plan for how to answer people's pain points. Well, And this, this is something that I want to make sure that people really get, because I think that's something that could be lost on, on a lot of a lot of people listening, which is this notion that. It's oftentimes not the response to the first question that gets to the real underlying issue. So how often are you totally surprised that the, the answer three levels deep is totally different from the first level answer you got? I'm not surprised at all. And in fact, what I, something that I'm working on right now is getting people to start thinking about the answer to the third question being the top level answer because people don't really want answers one and two. Companies think that they have to give this introduction to what they do and they have to explain who they are. And customers are like, I don't, I know that already. I'm already visiting your property or I've been made aware of you already nine times or whatever it is. I want to know what you can do for me. So I, I think that it's interesting. Absolutely. The deeper levels are, sometimes different than the first level. But sometimes I think we would 
do better if we could flip those things and really give people the information that they're looking for up top. And that's why it's so important to define your audience, because if you know what those deeper level questions are, but then you can see that you have to segment your audience into beginner, intermediate, advanced, you can then assemble the content in such a way that the people who whatever self-selected level they're on, they can get right to what they want as quickly as possible. Yep. So can you give me an example of kind of what, like when you're going through this, this investigation with people and you're asking questions where you might start and how that evolves. Cause I want people to kind of hear what it sounds like to say, wow, you know what? Gee, yeah. I asked that same initial question, but I never get to that third level. I'm just curious if you can give us an example of kind of what it sounds like, of how that evolves through time with, with clients that you've worked with? Sure. So the first thing that I do is that I comb through the business strategy and I really ask a lot of questions about it because a lot of times these things are written in such a way that there's a lot of jargon and I don't really understand what they're trying to accomplish. So I'll sit down with the main client contact, whoever it was that hired me to do the job. And then I will, you know, ask them over and over again, basically the same question in different ways. And then once we have that, we start asking questions about, okay, well, what are you doing to accomplish this? And what do you think your audience looks like at this point? And how do you know that? Tell me, give me an example of why you think that behavior is something that they are doing. Um, do you have any data to support that idea? Is that a hole in your knowledge? So, so, you know, way, let me, so let me, let me, let me step you back. So, because once again, I want to make sure that people get this in a way they can use it. So initially you're asking them, so, so tell me about your business strategy and what you're trying to do. And then and then as you're as they're giving the information, I love how you're then asking, so how do you know that? And now I guarantee that half the people you talk to kind of lean back in their chair a little bit and look to the sky and think, well, how do I know that? And sometimes I wouldn't be surprised if those people say, well, I don't really know it, but that's what I think. And now we start to uncover the truth a little bit. That's exactly what happens. I, I actually sometimes have to really push people and I've gotten into situations where, you know, and I've learned over years how to be smoother about it, but I've gotten into situations where I've really challenged clients and said to them, you brought us here to tell you where your issues are. Your issue is, is that you think your audience is completely different than the way that they actually look. I was once working for a higher ed client and the entire strategy that they put in place was so off the mark. And the reason that I knew this was because they had classes in the building where I was working. I was a consultant and I used to come in once a week and I would go and have lunch in the cafeteria and listen to the current students talk about the program. And then I would go back into my consultant chair and I would say to them, you have not spent any time with this audience. You have campuses all over the country. You should be visiting them on a monthly basis and listening to what these students are talking about because that will tell you who your future consumers can be. So yeah, I absolutely think that it's really about challenging what we think we know, particularly businesses who have been in business for a long time and are not really sensitive to the fact that market changes and market forces occur so much more rapidly and really trying to keep up with those. Yep. So now one of the, one of the most common questions that we all hear when it comes to content marketing and content strategies is how often should I be producing content? What do you tell people when they ask you that? How often does your audience need it? Yep. So again, it all comes back to that. If you're creating content around an ongoing kind of issue, 
then you need to be creating content as often as that issue comes up. If you're creating content where you know somebody's going to be um, buying a big purchase item, then you should probably be creating content that um, you know, surrounds all the different questions that they might have about that. One of the content marketing, like considered like the stellar videos was when, um, the bulldozer company did the whole Jenga game, right? Like they, they did like a real life, like Jenga game with, um, I can't even remember their name now, but that isn't really what content marketing is. That's that to me was more branding. What content marketing really is, is what is our point of view in the marketplace? How do we think we can be most helpful to people who are trying to solve problems X, Y, and Z? And let us share that information with them so that they can now make an educated decision about whether or not we might be the right people for them to work with. So from my perspective, that's how often you should be producing content. Is your Has your point of view changed? Did something happen in the market that you should, you know, talk about or react to? Is there something that, you know, you feel that you can add to the conversation or your competitors are adding to the conversation and you want to make sure that your voice is heard? One time we worked with a very large financial services company and, you know, there was a lot of movement right right around then in China and it was affecting a couple of their mutual funds and they needed to produce a lot of content around that to reassure their, reassure their investors. So it's the demands of the market and the demands of the audience determine how often you should be producing content. The other thing I'll say is that quality content and as Michelle Lynn now calls it resonant content is far more important than just producing content to produce it. So what do you mean by that? So, what I mean by that is, is if you think about it in terms of developing a relationship with somebody and having a conversation with them, if you start to produce content that feels like noise to them, they're going to, you know, not listen to you. They're not, they're going to delete your email before they open it, or they're not going to pay any attention to you on social media, or they're going to rip up your magazine when it comes to their house or just throw it into the recycling bin. But if every time you're adding to the conversation, you're being thoughtful and meaningful about it they're going to come to see you as a trusted advisor. I have a newsletter that goes out, you know, to thousands of people and I rarely get business leads from that newsletter. People don't come to me from the the newsletter. What they do is they come to me after a different touch point and they say to me, you know, I want you to know I read your newsletter for years and you really helped me out in certain situations and that's why I want to work with you now. So it's not a, it doesn't feel like a direct contact, but it feels like something I'm doing to build a relationship so that people eventually see me as the right place to come to solve their problems. So that brings me to another question and that is where do you draw the line And I've got a strong opinion about this, but where do you draw the line about anything self-promoting in your content marketing? So I will produce a case study once a quarter. I feel like it's, it's once a quarter. I send out a newsletter twice a month. I give people a lot of valuable advice. I feel like once a quarter I can send out a case study that talks about what we've done. This interview proves it, right? You asked me, give me an example of what it can actually do for companies. So I think case studies are valuable for people to read and I don't just think they're self-promotional. Um, but I, I don't, I think you have to be careful about that. And I think the way you really have to be careful about it is the quantity. So I have a friend who started a charity and she's been in the news a ton and she, every time it happens, she posts about it and it got to be kind of like, I don't, you know, I don't want to see all this all the time. It started to feel um, fake really. And so you know, inauthentic. And so I stopped following her because I couldn't deal with the constant noise about herself. Now, if that had been mixed in with, you know, 
hey, this is what's happening with my kids or et cetera, maybe it would have been different. So I, I think you have to be really smart about that and, and thoughtful about it. Well, it's interesting. One of the one of the ways that I often describe it to my clients is, look, you can share a case study. Just remember that the hero in your story is always your customer and not you. So the vendor is not the hero. The customer is the hero. So, you know, I always say with with my clients, yeah, these people double their revenue. These people triple their revenue. But what I did is a small piece of it. The reality is they actually did the hard work and actually put in the effort to make that change because there are people who listen to what I talk about, who read what I do and don't actually execute and don't actually deliver what needs to be delivered to get those results. So guess what? We can have all the greatest ideas in the world, but the clients who don't execute it probably aren't going to see the results the same way the ones who do the work. So I'm a big fan of having the client be the hero in the story, and I'd be interested in your take on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a huge part of it. I think I try to just talk about – I do that at conferences I think more than even in case studies where – you know, I'm, I'm presenting a case study with a vendor and I'll say to the vendor, I'm going to talk for like five minutes and then you should talk for the rest of the 40 minutes or the 30 minutes because nobody wants to hear from me. They want to hear from you because that's who they relate to, right? The people in the audience are the clients. They're not the vendor. So they're not relating to me. They're just looking for me to punctuate the, con- the presentation with expertise. And so I agree with you 100%. The other thing I'll say about what you said, which is really interesting and for people who are in sales and thinking about pitching to clients is that I've gotten better at selecting my clients based on what I call their content cycle maturity. So I'll ask them a lot of questions. And there are many times where I'll say, we're not the right gig for you because they're just not ready or they're not, they don't have the resources in place to do the things that we're going to demand them to do to be successful. And the last thing that I want to do is take on a project where I kind of know we're already set up for failure. And I've made a lot of mistakes about that in the last 11 years. But I think at this point, I've gotten pretty good at weeding out the people who we just can't help. Yeah. And I think that's that's another aspect that I spend a lot of time teaching people is, look, it doesn't matter how much somebody spends. If they don't get the results from you, they didn't get a good deal. So if you can make sure that you're never selling into a situation where you're not likely to deliver results, it's actually in your own best interest, not only your clients. I agree with you. The other thing I'll say about that I think that is helpful to your audience is even internally stopping a project or pausing a project to say, are we doing this the right way? Are we really getting the most bang for our buck is a really important part of content marketing because a lot of times we build these strategies and then we see they're not working and we sort of give out or we keep going the way that we're going. Now, I really believe that you need about nine months to see content marketing success. But I also think that sometimes there is value in saying, okay, this really isn't working. We need to change course. And so in terms of value and getting people what they need from content, I think they need to remember that that's an important part of exactly what you just said. We might be paying 40 grand from this, but if we feel like we're getting, you know, we got one lead from it and that lead led to, you know, $500, well then forget it. This is not worthwhile for us. So being brave enough to say, okay, what, what, maybe what could we change here? Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's great. And I often think it's funny when I talk to people and they say, well, we need to have a, a call to action at the end of every piece of content. 
And my argument is, look, if someone's reading the content on your website and if they can't figure out that the information you just shared is an area you can help them, then they may not be smart enough to be a client of yours. Because <laughs> at that point, if they can't figure it out, you don't need to say, oh, and we offer this service. If if you explain that here's the problem so-and-so had and fortunately we are able to help them and here's the outcome that they received – they'll figure out pretty quickly that they can click somewhere else on that page and reach out to you and, and contact you. And I actually think that the call to action decreases the likelihood that someone's going to share it and actually decreases their trust that it was an objective piece of content. That's interesting. So I could see how that would be different for different industries and different, like what you're trying to do. So for example, if somebody's shopping for a dress and you don't tell them how to put it in the cart, you're going to run into trouble. But if you're talking about, you know, um, straight up content marketing where you're giving your point of view and then you're, you know, you expect that people would want to use your services. But what I think is an important thing to think about is the person's journey. So if they're coming to that, your website, because they've seen something about you a couple of times and they think they might be interested and they get on and they look around for about five minutes and you can look at this in your Google analytics about, you know, how long people are staying and then they leave and then they come back. I think that sometimes they do that because they're not really sure what to do after they've read about what you do. They're not really sure that you're a good fit for them. So I do think that giving people not necessarily a call to action, but different choices about options about what to do next is helpful because most people, not that they can't figure it out, but they're not sure what the next step looks like. You know, they're kind of like high school boys who don't know whether or not they should text the girl back. You know what I mean? You know what? I, by the way, I I love that notion of even at the end of and at the end of an article to say, so how are you planning to use this this information? Are you a and and you could give them different different buttons to click. A, are you going to take this on and do the work yourself? B, would you like our help with it? C, was it interesting, but you're not going to do anything with it? And the people who click B all of a sudden are in your funnel. Right, absolutely. And or D, this was a complete waste of time, which then you'll know if this piece of content is working. No, I agree with you. I, I mean, I really do think that we we can do a better job of calls to action. The other thing I want to say is that a lot of people don't pay attention to the way their content reads on mobile. And sometimes having calls to action on mobile are really critical because people don't have that same amount of real estate to explore on. So I do think that there's a value in thinking about, okay, what do we really want to help people do here? What's the next step for them? And providing it as a link or a next step rather than as a call us at 1-800-whatever. You know what I mean? Yep. That's that's brilliant. That's brilliant. I love it. So making sure that we end up with that sort of call to action. So if you if you had one piece of advice to give to people to put themselves on the right footing for a content strategy and a content marketing strategy going forward, what would you tell them to do? I would tell them to go spend time with their audiences and to be smart about making business decisions. I'll leave you with a story from a friend of mine. So she did a very large engagement with a pet food company and she went in and the business objective was to get more people to buy their, to get more new customers to buy their pet food, to encourage customers to let their pets taste the food and then to buy more food. And so she said to them, well, how do you get your most first time customers now? And they said to her, they, the number one successful thing that we do is that we send out free samples. 
So she was like, okay, great. She's like, but they, the executive said to her, but we want to start a blog about why our pet food is so great. (laughs) She was like, come on people. So I think that that's a perfect example of being, what's the number one thing you can do? The number one thing you can do is figure out who your audience is. If your audience is going to switch cat food brands because you sent them a free sample, spend your money on sending out free samples. Don't spend your money writing a blog that nobody except like the crazy cat lady is going to read. So that's the number one tip I would give. That's great. So how can people find you online? Because I'm sure people are going to have questions www.ahamediagroup, A-H-A, mediagroup.com. And you can also search Ahava Leibtag, uh, L-E-I-B-T-A-G, um, all over the web. And we will have all this in the, in the show notes so people don't need to swerve off the road trying to write this down. Just check the show notes, and we will have all the information on how to reach you. So, Ahava, thanks so much for sharing your guidance and wisdom on content marketing strategy for everybody. Yeah, it was so fun. And Ian, every time I talk to you, I learn something new. It's awesome. That's awesome. You're the one person that happens to. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm the one lucky one then. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Ahava. Let me give you a quick 30-second recap of the key things I think you can apply from Ahava's message. First, don't make the mistake of failing to identify your audience as well. Make sure you know who you're going after and what message is going to matter. Also make sure that you have somebody in charge. Otherwise, you end up not tracking results, end up with duplicate data, and can actually lead to mistrust. And finally, make sure that you're not focusing on what you do, but instead the problems you solve for your customers. I want to thank those people who take the time to subscribe and share this show with your friends and colleagues. It really makes a difference. And remember, this show gets its direction from you, the listener. If there's a topic you want me to cover or a guest you think I should have on the show, just drop me a note at ian at ianaltman.com. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, even your customer.